Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Sebastian Heitmann, the co-founder and general partner of Extancia, a European climate tech fund based out of Berlin. We speak about his journey from kitesurfing to climate tech. We speak about his general rules of thumb of detecting great companies on the hardware side, the exclusion zone, the inclusion zone, the fundraising, and maybe the limits of institutional capital. Who should welcome institutional money or not? And the future of super climate, the leading climate tech event in Berlin that is now going international. And we have a few announcements at the end of this recording. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. See you then. Sebastian, welcome to Climate Insiders. Thank you, Joan. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you. And for people that don't know you or your fund, could you maybe just introduce your, your fund, your scope, and uh, the kind of ins and outs of Extancia? Happily, uh, of course. Um, so we founded Extancia um, in 2019 or 2018, sort of at the idea of 2019, eventually sort of started really working on it. Background, uh, actually, we've all of us been exposed to the world of uh, clean tech 1.0, energy investing in one way or the other. Uh, some more in a professional manner as a consultant, others as, as a LP to the funds working in the space or as angel investors. So, so we've been watching the space for some time and uh, we saw Paris Agreement come along, saw a really interesting macroeconomic framework appearing. Of course, we also saw the movements on the political side with the ESG or the taxonomy topics coming coming um, to life yeah, to categorize how we invest in the future. So we thought this is actually interesting momentum to do something. Uh, we had one of our uh, current GPs, IRM, he had a sort of front row seat in, in creating breakthrough energy ventures and also took quite a few learnings on, on how to build a fund in that space. So all of that thrown to a pot, you know, um, we, we saw what's happening. We knew that we need to do something on the front that, that capital is what's required in the market. I always say that personally, the last thing I wanted to do is actually a financial product in my life. Yeah? I was probably a bit more like usual, also on the entrepreneurial route, looking for solutions to, to, to bring to market myself, but lacking maybe your background, also lacking some technical background. I had to find out that maybe financial product is the one thing I can add most value to. So, um, yeah, we decided to set up a first uh, small vehicle to prove kind of uh, our our thesis with our first vehicle to pledge fund um, in 2020. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to go dive into that, your strategy to warehouse and then full-blown fund. But before that, I'm interested in your personal background because you have a bit of an unusual one. It all started yeah. from the world of kite, kite surfing. Even yeah, so, before that, uh, yes, there's also a world of part of, um, I mean, background economics, yeah, quite boring. Uh, uh, economics <laughs> degree um, uh, ended up uh, working. Then we actually straight out of university, we kind of co-founded the company um, that we in software space, which was then sold in the mid 2000s. Um, hmm. That's when I initially went on for an interim year to work for a US PE fund um, that was acquired as this water sports company. And so I went there, uh, did 
did, did that for for some time. That interim stayed for a very long time. In that time, though, I was actually already starting to do my my clean tech journey started back then. It's like we talk about the years like two thousand six seven here roughly, um, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of with private money investing into pre IPO IPO opportunities at the time in in the clean tech world. Paid my tuition fee, yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, that was uh, not always pretty. Um, it was pretty in the beginning, but it didn't turn end up uh, end pretty. Um, so the fair share of insolvencies, and uh, but still couldn't be cured from kind of the the intriguing part that technology will play in these sectors to really transform them. And then, like I said, like then things came along with Paris and taxonomy and things. We said, okay, this is really uh, developing into very interesting future market, and uh, there's something. Uh, that's just also very much needed. Yeah, we we need the entrepreneurial expertise. We need to help this generation of of, of different founders with different capital than that was out there till now. Yeah, we've learned this firsthand as well. You know, we, we've done, I've done angel investments after twenty fifteen as well in companies that I thought are amazing breakthrough companies. However, um, my address book for follow on investors was like so thin. Yeah, nobody <laughs> wanted to. Uh, invest into hardware at that time. So it was very tough for the entrepreneurs to to have access to capital. There was quite a bit of capital in the early stages and the stage where a lot of university or institution grants or non-dilutive sort of financing, that was okay. Then it was a long, 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 long valley until you finally become kind of a bankable product. Uh, And that sort of, yeah, there was no no venture capital actually at all going to the space. Some corporates have always been in that space, huh? but very different mindset at the end of the day. So we wanted to make sure that the, a market is created, a asset class is created where the institutional capital can invest with a good conscience, yeah, that this is return-driven, profitable companies, just another asset class like we've done with the internet or digitalization asset class. So this was our goal, really, to create a new asset class. But it, all, it didn't start it as crisp, you know, back then when we met the first time 2019, roughly, yeah. you were still uh, heavily involved on the, on the kitesurfing side. Maybe I'm kind of curious. You, you, so you're the founder of, of Founders Kite Club, one of the co-founders. And uh, I'm <laughs> yeah. curious about that bridge between the kite world and climate was how did the genesis of this idea kind of emerge and yeah, how did you operate the transition? First of all, Founders Kite Club is a hobby, right? It's not a, it's not a for-profit thing. It's a hobby. It's a community of entrepreneurs and investors. That's been running quite successfully. Uh, yeah, we, it's been 11 years now, about 700 members in the club, so quite a few people wow. there. Um, but it's always been the characters, been always been the community. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a community effort, community led effort, and also um, the, the spirit is the spirit unites us for sure. The, the spirit is about pioneering yeah? um, and entrepreneurship and. Um, and, and of course, the sportsmanship as well. I think these are good values yeah, that, 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 that play along in the entire life, personal life of, of one. And, and Founders Kite Club is just a great catalyzer for these. Yeah? Um, but it didn't necessarily lead um, to, to the conclusion to, to do a clean tech uh, or climate tech. It was not even, there wasn't even a word for it when we started. Um, so you know that. We met very early yes. on. Um, <laughs> at the very, very beginning. So, yeah, we're thinking about, is there a market? We weren't sure either. We had a couple of interesting, interesting people or interested people, interesting and interested people. Um, but I wasn't sure. So that's also why the first fund, we said, hey, let's do a one-year vehicle. We didn't want to go out with a deck and just fundraise um, uh, for, for years, yeah, to be honest. Um, we've seen some other funds 
EIP was out there already. Obviously, BEB was out there already. Um, but that was on the US side and with very different structures. I mean, back then, at least, uh, uh, BEB was kind of a billionaire's club. And EIP always had this very different focus on the corporates and with all the way they came from. Um, so that was not very comparable to what we were trying to achieve. Um, and also, we didn't have the address book of Bill Gates. So the billionaire's club was not in reach for us. Um, well, you see so, have a community of kite surfers and I hear, I keep hearing that it's the best networking ever, you know, especially <laughs> if you get high net worth individuals committed to the climate scene. Is that true? Yes. I mean, certainly, certainly there, there are some very interesting people in the club, uh, but, uh, and, and of course, in, in the club, we've discussed the topics as well. Yeah. I mean, of course, over the years, we oh, interested people discussing the topics of climate change and how to avert it, what solutions are out there. Different schools schools of thought there for sure. I mean, as well, we have a lot of very controversial, uh, controversial mm -hmm. discussions about um, how solutions can really look like on the technical level, but also the whole discussion, is technology the answer or do we actually need to adapt and and, and prepare for significant degrowth or, you know, no, it's very open format, yeah, and, and all types of thoughts are welcome. Um, so for sure it shaped um shaped my thinking about that and shaped sort of um also the conclusions i, I mean of course it, it played a role i mean it's been an essential part of of, of my life since 2011 so um it would be foolish to say yeah. it did not play a role yeah and and so so you mentioned that early on it was a one-year kind of a vehicle that you structured so extancia from the other funds that have started along the same lines, you know, and full-blown climate tech vehicles, Article 9, targeting institutional capital. You had a different strategy of finding early backers, warehousing deals, and then structuring a full-blown fund later on. In hindsight, was this the right strategy? It's also something I've been discussing with the other fund colleagues for, for, for some time. I think it, sh it gave us a certain advantage that it showed um, that as a team, we can work together, yeah? that we actually a team that has executed on some deals. In terms of an actual track record that an institutional investor would like to see, it plays, it's discarded. Yeah? Nobody, I mean, there's no exits, there's, it's too small, it's too, too few deals, you're not a lead position. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they would not, why they would discard it. Um, but there's also some points which they would will and would value. Yeah. Um, we've done some pioneering work there too on measuring impact, on how to compensate impact so with our EPIC methodology. So there, there has been some uh, things, but for us internally, why we did it was like I mentioned earlier, we did not feel like just going out with a deck is is what we what we want to do. You know, we're also, most of us are really entrepreneurs at heart. And uh, we were also anxious of doing deals. We didn't want to wait, you know, for two years until we finally do a deal. Um, so it was not actually officially warehousing. This is its own fund vehicle, which had a one-year deployment period, but it didn't warehouse for the uh, for the later fund. Huh? That maybe sometimes can be a bit of a disadvantage because, of course, now some of the companies in that fund actually are working quite well, and uh, we don't have them in our fund, and we also can't invest in them again because the cross-investing between two funds is is typically not yeah not not seen so not seen so well yeah you can do it yeah. but it's we haven't even tried to be honest we just said okay let's keep it clean all right and so you mentioned topics that fund managers discuss all the time one of them is fundraising and uh, the limits to institutional capital um so i mean this is um in this audience this is a free speech obviously we kind of have to keep an eye on lps because fundraising is never ending when you're a fund manager 
But there's also a few truths that we should s- spread, right? So uh, institutional capital and is not easy. It requires things no. that don't actually align with the venture interest. So I would love to hear your thoughts on all this and maybe help move the needle a little bit. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was our declared goal to create this new asset class of climate tech in order to allow institutional capital to to invest into it. Huh? Um, Fasa was obvious that this is the solution. I mean, institutional capital makes up what eighty percent of global capital or something. So, uh, ins- insurance and pension funds—that's typically the people you need trying to mobilize. And I think the taxonomy helped here. Yeah, that there is a classification. And we see that there is quite a bit of movement that these institutional capital is building out pockets from which they can invest. And typically, there is an Article 8 or 9 pocket, by, or not, not typically, but more and more are building up these pockets. And once you sort of have that categorization, the conversation is already quite a different one than if you're just trying to appeal to some type of impact pocket or something they, they might or might not have. Yeah? There's quite a few of them who actually had that earlier on. Some actually have, we've seen some institutional investors who've been investing into these topics for quite some time, yeah, surprisingly, uh, um, since even before 2015. Um, uh, so there has been also something before. Um, but maybe that's a bit of a differentiation I would like to make as well. Previously, it was a lot of sort of impact investing, yeah, where the impact is the primary metric. Yeah. We always say we don't invest for impact, but we invest with impact. Yeah? So for us, actually, uh, the financial performance is the number one metric. Yeah? Kind of comes out of the logic that we say nothing that will really be impactful and scale unless it's extremely profitable. Yeah? So any solution that's going to bring really large impact automatically has to be a very profitable solution. I mean, we define this in numbers. In our fund, we say 100 megatons of CO2, uh, reduction mm-hmm. per technology per, per annum. Um, that's huge, you know, that's gigantic. Um, in order to, for one company to attribute 100 megatons of CO2 abatement or removal, you have to be an extremely efficient business. So it, one thing kind of um, is very much related to the other. It's, it's not either or, at least for us. So um, what it does leave aside is sort of, uh, we, we focus very much heavily on the CO2 reduction. Of course, you could also, there's many other factors uh, that are also of importance that, we, of course, we are an Article 9 fund. And uh, so we have to he- adhere to all the other ESG practices as well. But it's not our primary metric under which we sort of look into a deal. Yeah? Um, but of course, uh, under Article 9, we are quite constrained. But to your, to your original point a bit, um, what are the sort of uh, what are the complications of dealing with these uh, um, institutional investors? How do we mobilize them? I said, I said the taxonomy is good. It helps. Yeah. Um, to sort of create these pockets. Uh, there's also, of course, drive from the uh, teachers or whoever's pension they're, uh, um, they're administrating to, to actually do something. Uh, that, that's also some pressure or the doctor's pension plan or whatever it is. Huh? Um, so there, there is a certain um, drive in, in that direction to, uh, from, from the asset owners yeah, to, to do something. However, it's a very conservative world that doesn't move fast yeah, and typically has a lot of boxes to tick, which, frankly, none of us really ticks yeah? um, in, in the climate tech world. Uh, there is, so, so you always need um, a certain level of trust from these people that they think you can do this yeah? because based on pure metrics, I think uh, we would all disqualify. Would you say that their angle of uh, the, the way they filter out 
teams and they look at projects is from a risk angle. So there's all this long tick boxes checklist. We need to fill all those boxes because we need to minimize risk from their uh, perspective and not because that's how we maximize the opportunity for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's 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 often this way. I mean, I always try to put myself in the shoes on the other side. If I had to uh, sort of allocate the money, and we are doing this as well. As you know, we also run a small funder fund, so we are also LPs to other funds, and then we are on the other side of the table where we need to see: do we trust this team? However, our thinking is way more advanced in this way. We were very good. Our mind is set. We know what we're looking for and what type of team we're looking for and then um, and, and the geography and the stage and stuff. So we were kind of set already. Um, but uh, if you're completely new to this and you previously have done very, very different funds, yeah, you are, as always, as, as with all corporates, there is a certain cover my ass attitude. Yeah. Um, People are not rewarded for taking any risk. Yeah, I think that's a um, big part of the problem. Um, there is no, there's no gain for them to have, yeah, to, to, to take a leap of faith. Um, uh-huh. uh, there's also no regulation pushing in that direction, yeah, that they have to do certain allocation into Article 809 funds, for example. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, that, that makes it significantly harder yeah, to, to, con- to convince them. That's interesting because if you look at the Extantia Fund of Funds, you're probably over-indexing or indexing a lot your decisions on mindset, on the entrepreneurial you know, side of things, but also on the narratives. And a lot of it is tell us the vision of your fund. How do you differentiate? How, how is this vehicle? Why does it need to exist? You know, Why should I invest in that kind of stuff? So indexing a lot on sort of the intangible, but tell me the right crisp vision, and then I'll put my money if I embark on that vision versus the institutional capital, it's kind of almost the opposite. Is I'm not too too much uh, embarking on a vision. Is let's make sure this is not going to blow out of the water and then uh, make us look bad because uh, the boss or whoever is you know allocating that kind of capital needs to continue allocating. It's almost like almost a budget negotiation internally, as I see on the institutional world, than it is about let's seize and maximize the opportunity to really drive change. Would you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I think the, the the these type of managers of pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, or they don't see themselves tasked with like maybe some of us do uh, of really uh, driving impact as well, driving a change as well. Often they're 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 specifically institutional. It's it's purely financial metrics, huh? and they have the choice to go with your unproven team in theory or somebody who is with fund number four or five and is consistently delivered. Yeah? So you know, you got justified and it's not an easy justification. Of course, That's everybody true. knows emerging managers tend to perform better than the rest. Yeah, uh, First, first uh, funds uh, tend to have a quite a strong performance. Um, but yeah, how do you sh- ensure that this is the right team and this will continue to be the right team also for fund two and three and four? And you don't you don't just have a lot of arguments going for you. You know that's the hard reality. I mean, you are in the, in the beginning, you are a beggar, yeah? <laughs> and um, you you have to yeah, try and convince with your strategy. But the argument of uh, we need to do this for the planet, we need to do this for future generation, that uh, doesn't really um, doesn't strike so chords. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I also say people always ask me, hey, why now? I mean, we've been knowing this problem for a long time. You know, with the, the, the whole issue of um, global planetary health is, is not a new issue. You know? Why does it work now? And my answer to this one is actually 
the fact that now the people who are managing and allocating the assets are actually of a, of a generation that's been born with the problem and has heard the problem since day one, since, let's say, the first Rio conference yeah, in 91 or somewhere, whatever that was, in the beginning of the 90s, um, I think. So si since then, they've been hearing that there is an issue. Of course, nothing has happened. Kyoto, Paris, and so on. Not really anything has happened. The problem's getting worse and worse and worse. But they are now sitting uh, at the front and uh, allocating the assets. And I think that makes a big difference that they actually understand the problem. But previous generations, they didn't even understand the problem. They said, like, what, what's going on? I mean, all our wealth is built on this. What are you proposing here? Um, so... I think that's the reason why we're seeing this this trend now. You know? Yeah. So last question on the institutional side is, would you recommend people that, are, that want to start new funds to go down that path? I mean, let's, let's face it, it's a long and windy road. We all kind of burn ourselves a little bit. There's a lot of learnings. And in a way, warehousing, creating a very tiny structure is to attract capital from the lower stack and that value, the capital stack is probably easier to develop your own track and then make sure you, that's the right fit for you know for you is that would that be your recommendation or institutional money needs to be part of the mix no i would never say that i mean i mean i think it depends a bit on the individual to be honest some people have an amazing network of individuals around them able to 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 pull together i think we also seeing some other approaches like like uh for example carbon equity does uh trying to mm -hmm. really pool um uh, smaller pockets, uh, like everyone's money into climate, I think it's an interesting approach. Also quite tedious, I imagine, but like I said, this is a, this is for me the approach, how to make this a normal standalone asset class yeah, that just uh, mm -hmm. is an alternative to investing into a normal, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, uh, index fund. So I, I think that's that's one, but whatever, it depends, to be honest. It depends what your background is, what your story is, what have you done before, um, if you're really going out for the first time and you can avoid, I would avoid. But uh, yeah, it depends what your background is. And uh, one of the carrots that Extancia is using, many other funds are, is the concept of GigaCard. And so you put on your LinkedIn, a lot of uh, you know Extancia guys do as GigaCard hunters. So so what do you effectively? How do you effectively identify GigaCard? What does that mean for you? And and uh, it makes it sound like a Pokemon game a little bit, you know, where you're throwing your Pokeballs around. <laughs> so how do you identify a Pokeball, a, a GigaCard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the idea, to be honest. You know, what the panda is for WWF, you know, create that kind of uh, sim similar animal um, that people can relate to easily. Um um, to be honest, nowadays I'm struggling a little bit with the GigaCoin concept because it, it kind of leaves out a couple of concepts. But um, but let's say first with simple idea. I mean, it's it's a company that is has a, a unicorn valuation, but a giga solving a gigaton CO2 problem. That's where the where it stems from, right? So what I mentioned earlier on the concept of of um, of a, you have to be a very successful company in order to really be a big part of the um, solution. Yeah? Um, so that, that's that's where the GigaCoin comes from. What it does not in, entail, and that's like a little bit, the, 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 maybe the problem with the concept is time yeah? and the consequence of that too. So, but first of all, time, uh, what we apply, I mean, besides size and profitability, there is when does the solution actually come to market and what's the embodied carbon actually to get it to market too. Um, so a solution which, takes until the year 2040 or 50 to finally become effective 
doesn't have the same value to the solution that comes in effect today. We call this a time value of carbon concept, something we could rigorously apply in all our in our investment decisions. What you end up doing then, well, what we end up at least doing, is when we take, okay, we want to see large scale, we want to see fairly fast results, um, we come to two conclusions. A, it's mostly hardware. Yeah? Uh, software mm-hmm. does not solve this problem. I always say CO2 is a molecule. You can't blockchain it away. Yeah? Um, and the other thing is it's about retrofitting. We cannot afford to build a whole lot of new infrastructure. We need to be able to retrofit our existing infrastructure, leverage it as much as we can, and, and avoid a lot of new builds. And new builds is also nuclear, also fusion. These are all new build infrastructure. So we need to see how can we use today's infrastructure as efficiently as possible. And this, that already guides us quite strongly in our investment decisions. We have our um, Professor Pomponi, who's the head of Carbon Math, who always reminds us of the as of this as well, by now we've got the sort of thinking quite well ingrained, but there, I mean, often the biggest uh, chunk of carbon is consumed in the construction of something uh, and not so mm-hmm. much in the in the in running uh, uh, or maintaining or even decommissioning something um, like a car. Yeah? The, the, the biggest carbon consumption of a car is the fact that it exists. Yeah? <laughs> it's been manufactured. So the moment you drive it off, no matter if it's electric car or diesel or whatever, it doesn't matter. The first big chunk of carbon you consume is when you actually buy the car. So rather than buying new cars, drive the old one as long as possible. Yeah, um, that's a that's that's a climate saving and not switch EV every two years. Yeah, did I, did I get that right? Does that mean that you do not invest in new build or new processes or trying to completely change the construction process? Um, no, no, I would not say it, it's 100% like this. For example, in the built environment, we talk about that. There, there needs to be new buildings. We cannot retrofit all of them. Um, as we're growing population, you know, um, it, it doesn't work. Um, it might work in certain countries, but definitely not globally. So there, there will need to be new build. There is also some infrastructure which is not worth maintaining, but it's a calculation you need to do. You simply need to mm-hmm. do what's what's the best way to do it. That's what we do with our, what we call carbon math. We look at the problem and we, we, we also look at the, we projected it to the future as well, of course. So we say like, for example, uh, an innovation that primarily depends on uh, energy efficiency, yeah, that the, this uh, and consumes less energy. But requires a huge build-up structure today. Is that a good idea where we consider that the, the, the grid is getting greener anyhow over the next decades? Yeah? And can we actually come to the point where we need to, where we sort of reach a net, uh, um, a net negative point yeah? where this technology has paid back all its initial carbon debt yeah? and is starting to become a net reducer? We have put this point to the year 2030. Any company is not able to do that before the year 2030, discard it. That's what I meant with the time value of carbon. But of course, that depends a bit. Like the economist can pick the, uh, the interest rate from a hat. That is also something you can decide for yourself, or the discount rate from the hat. So we have decided on the discount rate to be basically at this 2030 break-even time. But yeah, it uh, it that might differ from, from, from fund to fund. But fast, it's really of extensive nature that we take the embodied carbon into into account. Yeah? And they exist in different stages, like I mentioned, in the, in the origination and the build-up, the, in the maintenance. If I take the car example again. I am having uh, buying this car, driving it off, then I'm driving, I'm using it. And obviously, in, in, in that use, I, I burn some more carbon. Huh? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's electric or not. Depends on how you charge it, I guess, with electric. But um, but you will have to consume new tires. Uh, that's another embodied carbon producing the tire. And eventually, at the end of the life, the car needs to be dismantled and decommissioned and eventually 
put to shreds. Yeah, um, that's also another bunch of emissions. So we have to really look at the entire value chain, and this counts for every project that we look into. Now, uh, this is a question I get all the time: is when you look at a frontier tech, something where we clearly like data, and it's still very early stage. Is it overkill to run an LCA or some kind of LCA or carbon math? And is you, you're solely basing your judgment on the outside potential if it turns out to be true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we don't run LCAs uh, for that reason. Uh, we think it's too much a picture of a time point in time now. That's why we created Epic actually to sort of, we, that's kind of projecting the future. Huh? Um, so so we, we don't run it. It depends a bit on the technology and the maturity when you're investing. In early stage investing, it doesn't tell you that much the LCA. Yeah? In later stage investing, it might it, it'll, it could be different. Yeah? But yeah, the, I mean, typically, what type of emissions does a startup have? You know, right? What type of footprint so, does a startup have? Very small. And and a proxy of that is beyond LCA is how do you conduct a deep dive, right? A due diligence in a new sector that you've never explored before. It might have existed, but you have never, as a team, looked at, I don't know, um, um, sustainable aerofuels or green hydrogen, or yeah. how can you effectively run a due diligence and find out whether the founders are saying the truth about their cutting edge technology or, or not? I mean, first of all, it also depends on the stage you invest in. We don't invest super early when there's just an idea. We typically want to see a scale prototype now. Um, so we, we, we typically TRL five is our sweet spot when we invest. Huh? And because again, we're not the better scientists. We're not the better engineer. We need that to be covered by the founding team. Yeah. Uh, we need to have a lot of faith that this team is capable based on their academic or other track record achievements that they've done. And what we do is we help a great team with a great product build an excellent company. So we're here for scaling this technology and making a commercial case out of it. So um, if we, whenever we feel that we don't understand what's going on there technology-wise, it's simply too early for us uh, that we don't invest. Mm. Uh, um, That's a good proxy. We, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it's, 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 it's like this. Uh, so... Um, and, and sometimes you, of course, pan things out, pan, pan out quite differently. Companies pivot, the market changes, and so there's a, still a lot of things you can't foresee. But the majority of the risk that we take at this stage is a scaling risk, and not, not so much a technology risk. Also, maybe one thing that's special about us is we don't need to invest into any business cases that require consumer behavior change. The things we invest into are proven markets, or I say, companies who solve the trilemma. The trilemma is. The ecologic viable, the economic uh, reasonable and resilient solution, all three at the same time need to be met. Then we are investing into a market which is gigantic, which is the energy market, the largest market we know. So, but that's something that that all, all of the solutions that we invest into need to need to address. Consumer behavior change, you can't be lucky. Uh, Who would have thought that we like to write text 140 characters? Nobody knew, but all of a sudden it's a thing. But the same counts. Do I know if the consumer prefers uh, to eat? Uh, insect-based food or uh, lab-grown meat. I don't know. You know, this is all a lot of consumer behavior changes that we find very hard to predict. I think there's other funds out there who are better at that than we are, but for us, you know, we're quite simple. We look for these trilemma-solving solutions and then we have no doubts about the market. That's a good mental framework. And is there, because uh, climate tech, I often get asked, people that want to join the, this crowd and this ecosystem saying, I don't have the skill set. And uh, the truth is, it's so new that we're all learning by doing. We're figuring it out, whole hacking it. And that means that we are shattering our beliefs sometimes. Is there any core or fundamentally belief that has changed since you've, you've started this fund? Anything that comes to mind? Many, too many. Um, yeah, I know for sure. I mean, 
it's not always, uh, first of all, it's not always the best technology that wins, not by far. You have to have the right political tailwinds. You have to be able to confront lobbies from the other other side. Often, funny enough, the lobby is not just a bad oil and gas guys, but also people who are existing in the industry of renewables, for example. Yeah, your wind and solar guys are also defending their turf quite hard yeah? um, against other possible good solutions. But you know, it's 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 capitalism at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, and it's definitely not always the best solution that wins. Yeah? So there's a lot of things that need to come together. And as an entrepreneur, it's you have to really combine three major traits in yourself. Yeah? And they're also opposing at times. At the one hand, you need to be a great scientist to come up with the, first, the idea in the very first place. You need to have some type of novel thinking. Yeah? Then you need to be a great engineer to help scale it. And you need to be a great entrepreneur to actually help fi- to finance it. And three different hats changing from time to time, but you have to be able to wear all three of them. Those who are only great scientists or only great engineers tend to fail. Of course, you can also replicate these three positions in a team. It doesn't have to be one person, but then if you are a founding team, you really need to look for diversity of thought in your team. Two just great, three great scientists don't make up a great company. Well, you need a good storyteller. Someone who can tell the narrative. Yeah. Able to simply communicate. Yeah, simple, a- able to tell a story like you just mentioned, tell a narrative is so crucial. It's so crucial in, in, in simple words, make a complex, complex matter simple. We, we've seen this with companies that we also we've invested in that when they initially came to us, I want to say you were lucky you met the right person because uh, we were somehow were looking into complex matters. But I know that they spoke to other investors before, some mainstream investors, and they also like, don't know what they're doing. Yeah? Mm. Um, a yeah. very complicated machine does something really amazing, but really can't tell if this is anything viable. When in reality, it's really interesting breakthrough technology, and they, uh, but they wouldn't have been able to 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 actually sell it. Um, they they needed some help, and uh, we were in this position to help in this case, and really got the company on a great commercial traction. Now. Yeah, I completely concur here. I mean, I often come across scientists that just don't know how to sell their business, and it's a shame. I think it's an underappreciated role that salesmanship, you know, someone who's going to construct a narrative around and tell the crisp vision how it's going to pan out in the next five years, 10 years, 15, and why investors should invest now. It's critical. It actually really is mission critical to be able to tell that story. And you need specifically, since you know that you need to fundraise a couple of times in your life and uh, then you need this skill. Uh, it's 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 really crucial and sets the good ones apart from the bad ones. And if that's, if you'd have to focus on one skill, that's, that's a key, of course. I mean, you can be as good of a salesperson if the product doesn't meet the market. It's not a, a trilemma-solving solution. You can sell whatever you want. You, I mean, the, things need to come together. No? There you go. It's said mission-critical skill set. Yes. And so let's say <laughs> I wanted to switch gears and, and talk about uh, the other kind of side of, of your the community-building element, right? You mentioned on the kitesurfing side, but it's very applicable yeah. to climate. And this is kind of what yes. I'm uh, hoping to develop, more community, more bonding, more collaboration. And you're one of the, the first creators um, of Super Climate. I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on, on, on where do you want to take this? Do you think this is, is here to scale, to be replicated in other cities? And what format do you have in mind? <laughs> and maybe a bit of context. I have some news. I, have some, I guess I have some news to share with you, John. You haven't told you yet. Um, ah. So let's make it exciting. <laughs> yes. Exciting. Um, so, I mean, first of all, how was this born? And it was actually similar born to Extantia. It was born out of frustration and conviction. Yeah? Uh, similar concept. Frustration, us buying 
and you were part of that early early gang too, right? We were buying expensive tickets to super return, but actually nobody wanted to talk to us. Um, the institutional capital was not yet ready, and uh, we thought, okay, that's kind of a why don't we create a side event where we invite people that actually want to talk to us, you know, that actually are interested in what's happening in the climate space. And we did that and had a sort of a first quite small gathering, like 30 people or 40 people, um, repeated it, you joined the next edition. Um, and that was uh, quite a bit better. We had like 70, 80 people show up and it was a good gathering actually. Um, yeah. And then we sort of started to grasp, grasp the concept already. There's actually a couple things that are happening here. On the one hand, it's GPs meeting new LPs. It's also meet, uh, having a time, time to connect with the existing LPs, but it was also GPs meeting GPs. Yeah, was, I remember the second edition was really nice. We went afterwards for a drink and had a really good time, um, sort of fostering the community that, the, there. And of course, also very important, LPs get the time to talk to each other yeah, and exchange their views. So we thought, okay, this is actually a little bit of an interesting format that, that kind of fulfills multiple needs. Yeah? Hence, uh, we, we did the third edition this June in, in Berlin, and um, that was quite successful. We had over 200 people show up and kind of crowded house, and I think 4.5 trillion uh, US dollars assets under management in the room. So obviously that kind of big capital showed up. Um, and interesting side story, they also didn't want to go any longer. It was initially planned like a, like a three-hour event, and at the end we had to chuck out the big insurance company and say, guys, it's close now um, <laughs> so, um, that's good I mean that, that's a great testament um, to to how the market has developed yeah uh, but also how this need how that kind of kind of meets the need of, of community we sort of call it a bit of the home of that new asset class and as such we actually got quite a bit of demand now um, on on creating more of these events so uh, one I think we can announce already um, is uh, that there'll, there'll be a super climate event next to Super Return New York on November 7th. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, nice. And there going, is... Going international? Yeah, we had quite a few US funds already in Berlin. Yeah, and they obviously wanted to do something. They were the driving force behind this now to do something in the US. And our fund, the fund portfolio is quite US heavy too. And sort of they also had um, questions around this. So... We're preparing something quite exciting for New York, actually. So it'll be really good. Already quite a bit of buy-in. I think this this week will be the official announcement, but I don't know when is it airing. In two weeks, so maybe okay, it's going to so be late. I think it, it's going to be timeless. Late. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's timeless. Okay, but fine. Uh, then it'll be already announced in two weeks. And we also have plans to do something during COP, which are not yet uh, we're fully uh, fully ready yet to to. And what to about the about future for the Berlin chapter? Is it going to be a full blown event or just kind of the same structure? We are discussing that at the moment, to be honest. We What we see is that we need to professionalize it. We need to do something. Um, and it, it it's currently been run out of the marketing departments from Planet A, Revent, and ourselves. Yeah. But it's uh, it, it's it, now it's with, with multiple events around the globe. Um, we, we see that probably like three, four, maybe five events a year. Uh, we need to do something about that. Um, we actually were supposed to meet today to discuss it, but I, I couldn't make it today. So uh, we'll discuss it. Like a couple of days. Nice. Well, that's exciting. I, I tend to to like those kind of niche events, you know, under four hundred people, where you you you, um, you you index on quality, quality interactions. People know they are in the room for for a reason. And yes, and that's part of the secret sauce as well. So this informal correct character that we had always at Super Climate, yeah. that it's not just another conference. People are you know at a getting so many conferences. This is about this is about making meaningful connections. And one of the things how we ensure that this is not just 
a whole bunch of hungry uh, GPs sitting around five LPs um, mm-hmm. is, is actually by reversing it. We said everybody who wants to be a co-host needs to actually bring uh, two or three LPs, yeah, um, that we have an over always a, a more LPs and GPs in the room, yeah. That makes it for the LPs definitely more enjoyable, yeah. They get time to connect to each other, and for the GPs also good because it actually means there's a quite a big pool that they can get to know yeah? uh, of new people. Um, that, but it requires a certain um, uh, openness and uh, willingness to share in that community of climate tech funds. I mean, we are very transparent and open. With We have an open invitation list. Everybody gets to see all the contact details and everything from everyone. You, you know it. Yeah? Um, so we've always maintained that level of high transparency, high trust yeah? uh, environment. That's awesome. Yeah, keep up the great work there. It's awesome. We need more of those events. And uh, Hempus with Pell Blue Dot is doing the same with the drop. And so we see more of those events emerging. Really great. And and so kind of final question for people asking whether the game is set. You know, from the outside, it looks like now it's getting competitive. You know, for dollars, we're definitely in a bit of an extended winter. And is there still room for more emerging fund managers, more funds? Or do you think the game is set, at least for a while? What's your views there? I, I don't think it's set. I hope it's, I hope it's not set, but I also don't think it's set. Actually, like I said in the beginning, I think we see more and more institutional investors building out these pockets for Article 8 and 9 funds, and um, and that would mean that significantly more capital will flow in. If we take Superclimate as an example, you know, it went from 30 to 200 people in three years, and I think uh, that's a, also like a testament to the market in general. Uh, it's still infancy. Uh, it's still early in the game. Uh, we don't have nowhere near the capital requirement uh, required to to meet our or anywhere any uh, cl- any goals. We don't have all the technologies developed yet that we need to really run a a whatever hydrogen or nitrogen based economy or something. There's so many question marks still open. Um, so uh, on, on the same time, that's, that's the early stages. On the same time, we also need a lot of capital deployment. I think there is quite a bit of capital deployment, um, mm-hmm. but it, it actually the deployment capital is kind of sitting on a bit of a dry powder, not knowing how and where to invest uh, uh, this, 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 this pile of money. Huh, that they yeah, that's, that's another topic. It, 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 there's been a lot of raised capital. This capital is not being deployed as fast as people expected. Most people probably um, wondering whether you know we're gonna go through a really long valley of death or whether the you know things are gonna pick up. But the urgency is real. The 2030 agenda for most corporates, for governments, is there. So yes. the money, I think, the tap will continue getting open and it will flood the streets of climate tech. In my opinion. I, I, I hope so, and I, I hope that we that we get to see more funds, good good fund managers coming board. We have, I think, there's some specific needs in the market. Without getting too technical now, I think the Series B plus funds mm-hmm. um, are are at the moment uh, there's opportunities there. Or, True. Uh, more growth funds. Fund. Yeah, more like a growth fund. Yeah. Funds, of course, very hard to raise without a track record. <laughs> um, and the uh, traditional growth funds also. Don't tend to apply. We see some, someone, some few going that direction, Lightrock, for example, or Partech. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's not enough. That's two funds. Yeah, we would need a lot more of those. So that that there's an opportunity there, I think, to to uh, uh, to build funds in that direction. But it needs the right teams to really be able to pull this off. Yes, and. You and I will continue collaborating, exchanging, sharing ideas, diffusing knowledge. 
so that the ecosystem can can continue emerging. Yeah, I'm excited well, okay. for, for I'm excited about what you're doing now, Joanne. So, like I said, you've been on this journey pretty much since day one. So, uh, hope yes, um, hope we will continue to collaborate. Role is changing, but the journey remains the same, right? So, this obsession to solve climate problem is going to keep us busy for the rest of our days. <laughs> yes, so we, we should do a check in a couple of years. You know, we will have a lot more data, and hopefully, super yes. climate will become one of the central nodes in the network. <laughs> but, Thanks so Let's much, see. Sebastian. Yes. It's been awesome. Good conversation. Super insightful to you your journey. And to you all, thanks for tuning in as always. Ciao. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed, authentic, and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.